the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Everything that exists deserves to perish. So wrote Karl Marx in some really bad poetry. Welcome to The Antithesis. My name is Owen Strand, and I will be your host. Karl Marx witnessed his father, a lawyer of Jewish ancestry, convert to Christianity in 1816 at the age of 35. Why was Heinrich Marx baptized? He was baptized because in Prussia in 1815, a law was passed that banned Jews from high society. When he was six years old, Marx was baptized along with the other eight children in the Marx family. Is it any wonder, as you study the life of Karl Marx, that he would later call religion the opiate or opium, depending on how you translate it, of the masses? In undiscovered poetry, at least undiscovered to most, Marx quoted the line, said the line that I uh, referenced earlier, everything that exists deserves to perish. Here's the thing about Karl Marx. He's taken seriously as an intellectual, and he was definitely uh, an intelligent man who had a tremendous influence on the Western and broader world. But the reality is he is one of the most evil men in all history. He is the most successful evil intellectual in the history of humankind. Marx's ideas, in terms of their influence on communism and socialism-related systems, have led to the deaths of tens and tens of millions of people. No one really comes close to Karl Marx in terms of him having history's most successful bad idea, along with Friedrich Engels. And all of Marx's hostility to religion, it turns out, has to at some level emanate from what he saw in his youth. He saw religion not be held convictionally. He saw his father be baptized as a Christian, so-called, because of his desire to be accepted socially and advance in Prussian social circles. Is it any wonder that Karl Marx would, as an adult, have a jaundiced view of religion? This reminds us, as I said recently at the G3 Regional Conference, that there is a very powerful force in this world that we can identify and see that it has had a very wide influence, and that is self-serving hypocrisy. If you are hypocritical, if you are self-serving, and you make decisions along those lines, your loved ones will see it. Your children will see you doing so. And that will have a profound effect on them. If you do not truly hold what you say you believe, if you hold beliefs, in other words, for what they gain you and how they advance you, 
people around you will notice. You may be able to snow a lot of people, but those who watch you closest will not be confused. They will see your hypocrisy. They will see that you are serving yourself, no matter what you project in terms of your public face. This is a very powerful force in our world. It twists people and turns them. It helped to turn Karl Marx away from Christianity. As many will know, Marx absolutely militated against, for example, the biblical family and the biblical God. He was a man who despised Christian truth and Christian teaching. And at some level, that has to connect to what he saw growing up. There's another very powerful force in the world, though, alongside self-serving hypocrisy. You could call it holy boldness. Holy boldness. And this is what the Bible celebrates in spades. The Bible, in one sense, is a book about holy boldness, God-centered courage. I recently preached in Atlanta, in the Atlanta area, on Acts 18, 1 through 11. And what I want to do in today's podcast is take you through briefly Acts 18, 1 through 11, and I want to extract four truths about Christianity in fallen times. Four truths about Christianity in fallen times. This is not going to be an exact re-preaching of what I preached at G3 Regional, but it does track along those lines. The first truth we need to see about Christianity in a fallen world is that the context of God's work is that of persecution. This is what you see in Acts 18, 1 and following. You have Paul leaving Athens and going to Corinth. He finds Aquila and Priscilla in verse 2. He goes to see them, and then in verse 3, stays with them and works with them because they're all tent makers. In verse 4, we learn that he went to the synagogue every Sabbath, reasoning with his hearers, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks of the Christian faith. Verse 5 tells us that he specifically was occupied with this work and was telling the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. This led to no small response on the part of his hearers. In Acts 18.6, we learn that they opposed and reviled him. You can translate that second word, reviled, as blasphemed him. The point is that they opposed him as strongly as any human being can be opposed. And all, not because Paul was being unloving, but because Paul, according to Christian teaching, was being loving and sharing the gospel of divine grace with them. He was doing the most loving thing we can do in this world. He was telling them that the Christ was Jesus, and he was calling them to salvation in the name of Jesus. And so they opposed him, and Paul leaves the synagogue and goes next door, verse 7, to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. And there Paul continues, it appears, teaching and speaking and proclaiming Christ. And what happens in verse 8 is absolutely spectacular. 
salvific fireworks go off. Crispus, who is the ruler of the synagogue, comes to faith in Christ, together with his entire household. Now, sometimes, as some of you will know, Baptists and Presbyterians get into big debates over that entire household language. That would be to be drawn off the trail. Of course, nobody is baptized in this passage who is a baby. Of course, they're not baptized. They they can't put faith in Christ. They don't know the words that Paul is saying. They don't understand. So this is not a text that supports infant baptism. It is a, it is a text, excuse me, that supports bold preaching, holy boldness, as I called it earlier. And that's what is really at play here. The head of the synagogue, the most convinced of the Jews, believes in Christ. And then we learn, verse 8b, that many of the Corinthians, this is all occurring in Corinth, as I say, hearing Paul believed and were baptized as well. So this is stunning stuff. This is absolutely needful for us in 2022, being Christian, wherever you are, hearing this podcast in a fallen world. I hear from listeners regularly now, frankly, from America, but not just America, in far-flung places, and they tell me that it is hard to be a Christian where they are, and I believe them. It is hard to be a Christian just about everywhere in this world, but we need to go back to the Bible, to the New Testament, and take great encouragement, ironically, that the context for apostolic Christianity, faithful Christianity, is hardship. It is being opposed and blasphemed in Paul's case. And Paul is not doing something bad. Paul is not doing something wrong in occasioning that response. Paul is doing exactly what he was saved and called to do and exactly what every Christian is saved and called to do. He is testifying that the Christ was Jesus. He is proclaiming Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. For his efforts, he is severely opposed. Eventually, he will give his very life for carrying out this divine mission. But that does not signal failure, as we seem to think. That signals so-called success. To use a better, more biblical word, that signals faithfulness. This is all occurring in Corinth. If you were to target any first century city as being the place where the gospel would not take root, it would be Corinth. It's just like how in my previous Antithesis episode, I was talking about Peter and John, Acts 4.13, being untaught common men. Just as you would never have selected Peter and John, at least if you're a modern 21st century, somewhat cosmopolitan evangelical, to lead the apostolic mission, you would have selected somebody really well taught, somebody at least with a, a good sense of the upper crust and rich people and these sorts of things. You would never have selected Corinth to be the site where these spectacular salvific fireworks would go off because Corinth was very hostile to the gospel. The passage itself here, Acts 18, makes that clear. It's a very hard place to preach Christ. There was the, the temple of Aphrodite in ancient Corinth. There's tremendous trade going on in Corinth, which fuels temple prostitution at the temple of Aphrodite. 
It's a free-flowing, cosmopolitan city. It's got all sorts of belief systems riling through it, working through it. It's a hard place. It's a place where unbelief is right there in your face. You get out of the taxi, so to speak, and you feel it. You feel fallenness all around you. And you witness it as you walk through the streets of ancient Corinth and you ascend the temple steps and, and, and you hear the calls of male and female temple prostitutes who are urging you to come in and commit sexual sin with them as an act of worship. You would feel this if you were in the city. As a Christian, you would resist it. What was the apostolic strategy in such a place? Was it to say, well, this is a tough target. We're not going to train our efforts here. We should go somewhere else. We should go somewhere where I fit better, speaking as Paul here for a minute. And uh, th- this is just too tough. I can speak to Jews. I can preach to Jews. But these Jews, they're, they're going to be especially tough Jews. So I'm not going here. I'm going to go elsewhere. Paul's strategy, as with the entire apostolic strategy in the book of Acts, in the first century, was not at all to play it soft. It was not at all to take uh, controversial doctrines off the table in his synagogue proclamation. He went into synagogues every Sabbath and threw down. He preached as clearly as he could. He preached, to use a word from the Gospels, with exousia, a marvelous Greek word that you should commit to your memory. You, you find this word in a passage like Mark 1, 21 to 22, speaking of how Jesus taught. And they went into Capernaum, Mark 1, 21, and immediately on the Sabbath, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, exousia in the Greek, and not as the scribes. What's the distinction here? Scribal preaching was footnoted preaching, nuance-heavy preaching, endless qualification preaching. It's from a different world for many of us, but it's actually directly relevant to 21st century preaching, so-called today, where a pastor will say something, perhaps, that is a principled statement, a declaratory statement, and then he will qualify that heavily. He'll water down his statement so significantly that you will have trouble remembering what the principle was that he declared just a few minutes ago. That's how the scribes preached. They heaped up all sorts of citations. They showed off their extensive learning and research, and they found authority in that body of work, in their intellectual uh, uh, credits, in uh, all the sources they had studied and could cite. They found their authority, in other words, if you really strain this and parse it, in men, in the academic conversation, we would probably call it today. It's no bad thing to do deep research and scholarship and footnote things. I try to do that when I write. But I never want to do that in a man-centered way. And that's what the scribes did. Jesus taught the people in the synagogue, the synagogue he entered with what you could call a certain measure of holy boldness. And he taught them as one who was not like the scribes. He taught them as one who had exousia, divine authority. Listen to me, friends. I've said this before. I'm sure I'll say it again. 
People hate the word authority today. People in the culture despise authority. And a good number of people in the church despise authority as well. They may not know they do. They may not think they do. But by their actions and even by the stances they take, they show that they despise authority. If they are willing to affirm it in some limited sense, they will only allow just a few to possess it. And there, in a very scribal way, they will qualify it. You say, we have all sorts of scribal teaching today. What we have very little of is what you could call exousia preaching. That's authoritative preaching. That's God-centered, bold, exegetical, expository preaching. It's not sharing something. Remember that you share chicken nuggets with your friend, with your kids. No, in exousia preaching, you proclaim a Messiah. You proclaim a Lord. You proclaim a King. It's the kind of preaching, frankly, that divides. I just said that sentence and some hairs on the back of some necks went up. Because for preaching to divide in our age is really basically the worst possible outcome. It's terrible if your preaching divides. Now, we can divide for bad reasons. Let's not do that. But what you see in the ministry of Christ and what you see all throughout the book of Acts is that apostolic preaching draws lines. It draws one very significant line in particular, the line between those who do not worship and recognize Christ as Messiah and those who do. It is intended to draw that line. Apostolic preaching, exousia preaching, is aimed at clarity. It is not aimed, first and foremost, at affirmation of the sinner in their natural state. It is not aimed at drawing Christianity near to the thought and practice of the natural man. Apostolic preaching is confrontational preaching. We need not hear that word as meaning hateful or unloving or some such descriptor. Apostolic preaching, biblical preaching, gospel preaching, Christian proclamation should never be hateful. Absolutely not. It should always be driven by love. But it is nonetheless confrontational preaching, and here's what I mean by that. It confronts the sinner in their unbelief, exposes unbelief and sin, and calls them in love out of unbelief into the marvelous light of Christ Jesus. It aims at helping sinners understand their terrible condition. They're not just a sinner. That's hard enough to admit for all of us in our sin. No, as a sinner, you are bound for hell, and so you need the Savior. Now, apostolic preaching, or more broadly, faithful biblical preaching, does not only confront. It does many things. It exercises numerous muscles in truth. You need to be faithful to the genre in which you are preaching, for example. That doesn't mean you don't preach Christianity or Christ or the gospel, depending on the genre you're in, but it does mean that you let your proclamatory tone, if you will, reflect that of the passage. That is faithful preaching. So if you're, if you're in Isaiah and you're in a passage where the Lord is comforting his people, uh, you're not going to preach that as if God is condemning his people. If you're in a passage where God is condemning his people, uh, you're going to let that note ring 
even as you then point your hearers to the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. There's much more to say, but fundamentally, apostolic, Book of Acts-like preaching is confrontational in that it does not coddle the sinner in their sin. This kind of preaching need not be associated with red-faced, shouty preaching that is angry at sinners. Confrontational preaching is, as we saw earlier in the book of, of Acts in this passage, Acts 18, uh, preaching that reasons with one's hearers and seeks to persuade them that Christ is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ. There's so much more to say here, but suffice it to say that this is the kind of preaching that turned the world upside down in the first century. This is the kind of preaching that made scores of disciples in this era. And this is the kind of preaching we need. We desperately need exousia preaching. We have a famine of God-centered, bold, exegetical, expository preaching. All of it unfurling the glorious truth that there is a way out of eternal damnation, and that way is the blood of Jesus Christ, and we will live eternally when we trust that crucified Christ and know him as not only the crucified Christ, but the resurrected and ascended Christ. We are born again when we repent of our sin and trust in Christ. And that is exactly the mission and the method and the message of the Apostle Paul. And this has, as we read a few minutes ago, tremendous effects in Corinth. What is the careful, contextual, cosmopolitan strategy for reaching the unique city of ancient Corinth? What, what is the um, missional key to unlocking Corinth that we see displayed in the ministry and preaching of Paul in Acts 18? It is very simply the same message, the same gospel that Paul preaches everywhere. Yes, there are certain subjects that he covers in one place that he doesn't cover in another, or certain emphases. We can, we can handle that. And yet, it is the same gospel. It is the same Christ. It is the same authority with which he proclaims Christ, that he proclaims Christ everywhere else. And as he does so, people get struck down in their unbelief and converted gloriously, powerfully converted, including the ruler of the synagogue, Crispus. He and his whole family, everyone who is of age to understand and respond to the gospel message, is born again. This is absolutely glorious stuff. And it reminds us of the total chaos of the apostolic age of the first century church. In just eight verses, we have serious conflict, reviling, blaspheming, throwing down, and then glorious conversion. This is what happens. And this leads us to understand that this is exactly what God wants. This is exactly what Christians are called to provide. You see, our second truth for being a Christian in a fallen world is that we must not fear but speak boldly. That's what verse 9 says. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. Now hear this call from the Word of God, Christian, as I share these thoughts. 
do not be afraid, verse 9. That is what the Lord, that is what Christ says to Paul in a vision, indicating that the Apostle Paul is going to be tempted to feel fear, to fear man. When the Bible tells us not to be afraid, it's not saying, don't fear God. (laughs) You should fear God. It's saying, don't fear man. But lale in the Greek, go on speaking. Do not be silent. Paul, you must not fall silent. You must go on speaking. Christian, we've talked about this many times on the antithesis, but I want you to hear these words with fresh confidence and hope. Do not be afraid. Everything in this age is calculated to make you afraid. Our unbelieving neighbors all around us are living enslaved to the fear of death, and society has transitioned, as we have discussed previously, from a risk-taking culture to a fear-based one. And that means that there's even more weight on the bar than there has been at different times and seasons in our lives to fear man, to force us into an entire lifestyle and really worldview of fear. But hear the Bible. Now hear God, do not be afraid, but keep speaking. Holy boldness is exactly what we need. And this leads us to our third truth here. God is going to save his chosen. You see that in verse 10 and 11. I am with you, Christ says in the vision, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he, Paul, stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. God is going to save everyone he has elected, everyone he has predestined to salvation, everyone he has foreknown, which doesn't mean known ahead of time merely, means foreloved, loved ahead of time. Pause for coffee break. This coffee break was sponsored by the Banner of Truth mug that I'm holding in my hand. Very nice black Banner of Truth mug. I am with you. I have many in this city who are my people. No one's going to attack you. There's a kind of divine protection shield put around Paul for this season of his ministry, for these 18 months. There are many who want to attack him to harm him in Corinth and elsewhere. And as I said earlier, Paul's life is going to be ended violently. But for this season, God has ordained that no one is going to attack Paul and shut him down because because Christ has many in this city who are his. Because the Father has elected many in Corinth, many in Corinth, to join his family. And this this is our hope. This is our confidence in evangelism and in missions. That we're not culling the herd. We're not the ones who are going out and by our winsomeness or our arguments or our learning or our coolness, we're not the ones who are responsible for people getting saved. It's God's elective decree that he is carrying out through human vessels, nothing burgers like us, to bring in his chosen, to save those he has for loved. That is the bedrock of all Christian evangelism and missions. And if you take out 
that foundational stone, the whole enterprise is plunged into man-centeredness and prospective fear and worrying and finagling of the gospel and trying to manipulate the message because people just aren't responding the way we want, so we're probably getting it wrong and doing it wrong, and so we need to figure out new contextual keys to different societies and cultures, because if we don't, we won't be able to make disciples, whereas the divine charge is very simply to speak the gospel, to proclaim Christ, to know that God is with Paul and all the apostles, and to take heart that God is going to save who he is going to save as he uses people like us. And so all this means in conclusion today that we're not ministering divine grace as believers, men and women alike, and in terms of the leadership of the local church, men, from a posture of weakness. Christian, you are evangelizing, you are living from a posture of victory. The victory is won. God is with you. You're under divine protection as long as God allows, and you're especially under divine protection when your life ends, because then you go to heaven, and you'll pass from there in God's time of appointment, the Father fixing times and seasons according to his own authority, Acts 1-7, into the new heavens and new earth, and you will live forever with God. There will truly be no threat of attack. It's not even a distant possibility on the horizon. You are safe and you are secure and you are home. Believer, that is where you're headed. That is where you are headed rapidly. Each hour, each day that you draw nearer to death or to eternity is not a lost day. It is a day gained. It is a day that you are closer to glory. You are closer to your home going. Yes, there is real sadness in this world. Yes, there are many things we mourn. No, death is not itself good. But death, for the Christian, has become nothing less than gain. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Philippians 1.21. This is what we are seeing exposed in our time. Many who say and profess the name of Christ really aren't living for Christ. And thus, death Dying is not gain for them. It is loss. But if you are grounded in the good news of the gospel, if you are saved, if you are a Christian, if you are born again, then to live is Christ and to die is gain. To be attacked, to be hated, to be opposed, to have people dislike you, stand against you, say mean things against against you for the purpose of defaming God, the God that you are representing, is not loss. It is gain. We can't speak to every factor that went into the truly malevolent body of work that Karl Marx produced and stood for in his life. But we can say this, even as there are many who are watching hypocritical people live, including hypocritical Christians, including those who are saying that they're a believer now, but are in the open process of, air quotes, deconstructing their faith. Even as their children watch them use Christianity for gain, earthly gain, I mean, 
There are many other children who are watching their fathers and mothers suffer for Christ, and that will have an equally forceful effect as God moves and God blesses in the hearts and minds of those children. As I wrap this up, just hear this charge afresh, believer. Know that little eyes, if you're a father or mother or or just a Christian more broadly, are watching you. Extending beyond children, people are watching you as a Christian. And if you buckle and show that you do not really want to pay the price for being a Christian, that will have an effect. We've talked about that, though. I'm talking about the second part. Consider with me the effect of suffering for Christ. What does it mean when a pastor gives up the pursuit of gain and popularity and standing and a speaker's place at the big conference and a book deal? What does it say when he gives all that up in order to take a stand for the gathering of the church, the purity of the gospel, and the clarity of the sufficient scripture? What does that say? It is a powerful apologetic. What does it say when a father or mother gathers the kids around the kitchen table, the the dad and mom sitting together holding hands, and the dad says, dad is having some challenges at work because he wants to provide for this family. He loves mommy and he loves you kids so much, but because of God's word, he can't do what his workplace, what his company, whatever it may be, wants him to do. He has to stand upon Scripture. And that's going to mean uh, that dad is, is going to keep working hard to provide for the family, but there could be some challenges. So just know, children, that you are loved, that our family is anchored in the goodness of Almighty God, and that God is sovereign over all of this. We have a loving Heavenly Father, who is watching over dad and mom and this family. But there could be some challenges ahead. Kids, dad wants you to know it's worth everything. Because you see, children, just as dad and mom have said now for years, now we're getting an opportunity to practice practice this. Uh, An opportunity to practice this, kids, that you will likely have as you grow up and as God works in your heart and you become a Christian and you love Jesus Christ by divine grace. And this opportunity, beloved kids, is this, to show you and everyone around us that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.